You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's windrows they have the men's windrows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out hey guys welcome to land and legacy podcast this is your host adam keith we're co-owners of a consulting company called, go figure, Land and Legacy. This is your number one podcast resource for all things land. Each week we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. All right, guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye, and I've got special guest, Frank Longcarriage, Land and Legacy consultant, here with me as well. We are traveling back down the road from, Frank, your first consultation with us here. Yeah, absolutely. In Oklahoma. Oklahoma, yeah, kind of south, central, southeast Oklahoma, a place I've never really been. Yeah. Cool country. Absolutely excited to go with you, and it was a great time. Man, I, I I always love Oklahoma. I think everyone's probably heard us talk about, you know, the joys of of coming to this landscape in this state and just seeing what it has to offer. And it's always a little bit of like that uh, kind of Easter basket feeling or Easter egg. You never know exactly what you're going to get because it's a landscape that can change drastically and very quickly. And it's pretty dang diverse when, when you look across the entire state from east to west. Yeah, Oklahoma is super diverse. And as I mentioned, I've never been in that part of Oklahoma. I've been across Oklahoma from east to west, and it's a super diverse state. You know, you've got the very edge of the Ozarks in the, in the northeast portion all the way to the, to the mid-grass, almost short-grass prairie in western Oklahoma. Really cool part, a really cool diverse state. And we were kind of in that, as I talked to you a little bit, kind of in that tug of war between tall grass prairie yes. and savannah woodland 
matrix and and we were kind of in that in that zone where you're starting to get out of the tall grass prairie or, or excuse me out of the the cross timbers and into that tall grass prairie and we were on a great property that had a mix of both yeah and i think that you know if, if you're out there and you're listening you're like okay your guys are throwing a bunch of just random terms at me cross timbers tall grass prairie whatever think of this just awesome transition line or if you will i'm going to air quote this edge habitat but this incredible ecosystem of varying habitat types from shrubs to grasses to forbs to tree components and all of that mixed up in one that's this area naturally occurring so it's like well dang that sounds like a good place to have some deer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was some land, right? It, it was great. It was great. It was a. Uh, we saw lots of different ecotypes on yes. this one piece of property, and looking at a map, had no idea that these. Even the night before, when we were visiting with the landowner, you know, we kind of looked at this and said, "Oh, we know we might see this here. We might see this here." But once we got on the ground and we started seeing these ecosystems kind of unveiled before us, so we're like, "Wow, this is." pretty cool on this one piece of ground it, well, it was some, some of the most diverse piece of property i've ever been on to be honest with you yeah and and you've been on a lot of acres from montana out you know you guys just just doing some uh, podcasts from when you guys were out in wyoming, wyoming and nebraska, nebraska. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, but you've been to wisconsin you know montana all over the midwest and right. seen tons of different ground managed at a lot of different ground in Missouri. Same thing here. Adam and I have been all across the country. And this this property, though, was just extremely diverse in its ecotypes that it had to offer. But the important takeaway from that is we sat, I don't know how long we were sitting there with the landowner last night before actually getting their you know, boots on the ground approach, but looking at an aerial photo mm-hmm. and having both very comfortable um, knowing this cross timbers, tall grass prairie region where there's savannas, woodlands, whatever, we kind of knew the components that we would likely see or, or, or we could um, encounter. But when we were looking over the aerial, again, it did not necessarily reveal that to me in the aerial image. So you can look and study images and, and aerial maps from you know daylight to dark and that's awesome and get to know and be familiar with let's say just the footprint of a property but you don't know the impact of that footprint until you're on that property and i think that's super important from those folks who are out there you know whether they're long distance scouting you know for for a non uh resident hunt or you know somewhere out of state they're going to go travel to um aerial photos again reveal a lot but they do not paint the full picture so getting recommendations just aerial photos like that's that's tough like yeah. it's it's very it, it can almost it, it, it's kind of deceiving because if we if we had tried to make recommendations to landowner about what needed to happen to reach his goals last night before being on the property we, we would have said some of the wrong stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Aerial photos don't tell you species composition. That's they right. They don't tell yeah. you how these species are arranged on the landscape and how they may interact on the landscape and the disturbance that was historically on the landscape or the disturbance that is currently on the landscape. You really have to get out on the ground to be able to see that. And today, 
the cool thing about it is in this landscape. It, so so normally when I'm when I'm on a piece of property, you're on a tall grass prairie, or you're in a woodland. Rarely have I been in a place that had all of those plus the associated glade savanna potential within it. So we were we were in a particular spot where we were on um, potential ecosystem change from the bottom of a hill up to the top, and we got to see all of that on one piece of property. And yes. looking at the guys from the guys' table the night before, couldn't tell that. Well, honestly, all that it looked like from, and we had topo lines, we had everything, but if someone untrained eye and everything was looking at that, it would have been, oh, that's just a hardwood ridge. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Well, that, but that's what the aerial showed. That's what yep. it indicated was there. But knowing the, the historical land use and the, the, um, the true habitat types that are present or should be present in the area, it's like, well, there could be something else there. We could see, you know, potentially some scattered cedar and stuff in that aerial image, but it just did not paint the clear picture as as it was on site. And well, even even going to some of the areas that had been um, farmed, you know, th- mm-hmm. this this ground there was probably about 200 acres or so mm-hmm. of uh, Bermuda uh, hay ground. Right. And so, but when we got there to some of these areas, he had told us that let's say he had. Again, we're going to air quote this. He had taken some out of production, and that meant they just didn't harvest it for a year. Yep. But didn't when they didn't, on yeah, they didn't harvest it for a year. That completely changed the species composition. So maybe it's a, it's a lack of disturbance or or just a time frame. Again, changed the species composition in those stands, and redirected our recommendations. But we couldn't tell that from an aerial image. That was taken, maybe, I don't even know when it was taken, probably a spring or two ago. Yeah, it was or, fairly recent. Yeah. So, but again, it did not reveal what was there and happening and the influence that it had on the species that he wanted to promote. Right. So yeah. that's a huge, huge lesson just right out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely. We saw some, so, so when, when Matt talked about taking it out of production, what happened is we started to see big blue stems show up. We started to see... Indian grass show up. We started to see some some tick seed sunflowers, some really cool stuff, some split beard, blue stem. Not that it wasn't always there. It was just harvested. It was just cut off all the time, and you couldn't really see it vegetatively until it really sent up a stalk and put its seed head on. And so that gave you then and me a better idea of how to shift it or, or what this community could be with a little bit of, of proper disturbance or different disturbance. Yeah, and I think that right now is a great time to kind of talk about a discussion that we had with the landowner in the field there, and that is the significance or false uh, understanding of the role that native grasses play in a property managed for the promotion of, let's say, wild turkeys, white-tailed deer, quail, bobwhite quail. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I don't know, I don't want to, you know, I'm like a point of finger, or, you know, blame anything, but there's been a lot of publications, a lot of government programs, stuff like that, that's just been a large promotion of grasses, just a grass-dominated stands. And I think in the farmland that a lot has been promoted in, because there is just an overwhelming lack of cover, there's been like this native grass put on a pedestal of 
quality sound habitat management and recommendations. But as we talked in the field today and looking at, okay, what's coming back in these areas or, you know, after not being mowed, what some of these native grasses are that are present are, we had the discussion with the, the landowner of, man, these are great. This is awesome to see as an indication, but we'd also like to see a lot more forbs. So, Frank, talk for a second a little bit, you know, from, from the quail, from a wild turkey poult situation, the importance of the forbs and, and the role that they play from just a uh, brood-rearing standpoint and why the composition of forbs versus grasses in a stand, what that ideally looks like. Yeah, so you're absolutely right about the promotion of, of native warm season grasses as being as being this cure-all or, or this panacea to, to our wildlife troubles. And to a certain extent, um, that has helped. CRP has certainly helped sure. the pheasant population. It's certainly helped the duck factory in, in the upper Midwest, in the prairie pothole region. CRP has been a big boon. But that said, it could have been a ton better if the CRP would have been far fewer grasses and more forbs, just think of the response then oh, in boy. pheasants. Think of the response in the prairie grouse species and the quail. And, so, and, and real quick, I don't mean to cut you yeah, off no there, problem. but what what the difference is between, it's not just like, okay, grasses and forbs. Okay, I, I get it, guys. But what that means, it, it's it's truly the, the lack of food present on the landscape versus just an overabundance of cover, whereas forbs... Can that's do both. right. That's exactly right. So the grass provides the nesting substrate, and to some extent, the cover uh, and thermal protection for these species. It doesn't provide food resources for these game bird species or turkeys that that we're most interested in. Those food resources are coming directly from the forbs in a few different ways. One is the green shoots that they provide. The green leaves is an excellent food resource. Two is the seeds that these forbs produce. Tons of seeds. Grass seed is really not useful for game birds. So these, these forbs are our, are our seed producers. And probably the most important aspect is the insects. Yeah. Forbs are insect factories. These, these forb-rich communities are full of insects. And the game birds from bobwhite quail, pheasants to wild turkey to bird chicken, you name it. Most of the summer are feeding on insects and certainly for the first month of their life are almost totally dependent on insects for that high protein shot in the arm that they need to grow. So we're getting ready to go through a toll yeah. real quick. So if there's a little bit of a weird pause and like, oh, hey, here's five bucks. I'm just going through a toll in Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. So going through a toll, but I, but I will. Yeah, you run it. Uh, yeah. So, so I'll. As we talked about those forbs and those grasses, you absolutely need those grasses for the nesting substrate and for a cover. But the forbs are more important. So Dale Thanks, Rollins sir. out of Texas, he he talks about the ideal um, sort of structure uh, of grasses. And he talks about a clump, a basketball-sized clump of native grasses being kind of the right nesting substrate you need 30 of those per acre that's pretty sparse right that's really sparse. that's you really sparse and, and if 70 you look yards at, by 70 yards yeah roughly so, an acre right so if you think about that so what's what needs then is going to fill in that well 
that's going to be Forbes or that's going to be bare ground. That's going to be these umbrella plants. These, these, these rich broadleaf plants are far more important to quail than the grasses are. And then the shrubs are also equally important to quail. But um, so getting back to your point, I think we've, we, we've spent a lot of time in the conservation world promoted native grasses. And that's excellent because they have been depleted across the landscape. It's, it's got a, us to this point. It's important. Say. Yes, it's important to get them back on. It's mo- more important to have a native, gra- a, a native grass landscape for, for grazing animals rather than a tall fescue landscape. But the forbs are really where it's at, not only for the little game birds that I manage, all the way up to the to the white-tailed deer on this gentleman's oh, farm. Uh, if if any has anyone has questions about it, just revert back to the Old Field podcast about four or five weeks ago. I did it with Todd Watts and the production that he's getting out of his Old Field stands, Forbes, in Ohio. This isn't just Oklahoma. This just isn't tall grass Midwest prairie states. Forbes are present across the enti- entire North America where whitetails live, where turkeys live. I don't care what subspecies you're, you're chasing. Forbs are important and need to be promoted in the landscape because of the, the value from a forage and cover standpoint that they can provide. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we have gone in the, in the plantings that I rec- recommend. So let, let's think in a, in a 15 years of evolution, the plantings that I plant on the properties that I manage or when I write a management plans for landowners, when I was first really getting rolling with this probably 15 years ago, I was recommending five to seven pounds of native grass seed per acre, plus an associated four mix, and get it get it planted and get it rolling. Over time, we have drastically reduced that to now. I'm only doing about one pound of wow. little blue stem per acre. The rest of my mix is going to be Forbes, because that grass, while it's important for for a, a huge natural history component of those of those birds lives it's only a small fraction of it yeah. they need forbs they need the associated it, protein that comes with the insects it would be like an equivalent let's just say in the deer world of, of this this mindset that deer need and have to have a prolific amount of white oak acorns present in their diet or on their landscape to persist mm-hmm. no that's absolutely false they use it because it is a valuable resource but it's for such a short amount of time that it's actually productive and produces quality and a quantity of forage that's impactful to their actual diet throughout an entire year. Mm-hmm. It's a small portion and, and, and of high value and importance, but we don't need to oversell the importance and we need to realize you know, from an overall standpoint of the role that it does play and keep it in that place, let's say, and yeah. not overdo it because if we're overdoing it then we're lacking elsewhere in the department of making that ground that land as productive as possible for the enhancement of whatever wildlife species you're promoting yeah you bet yeah so you asked a question earlier sort of what is that what is that ratio yeah i'm going to put on my game bird out here specifically you know bob white if if, if i'm going to think about that i would i would err you know maybe 30 20 to 30 percent grasses and then i want forbs a matrix of forbs bare ground and then woody shrubs to be a large component of that shrubs up to five to fifteen percent of the landscape 
of the of the acreage that I that I'm managing, and, and so I'm I'm talking about bobwhite quail standpoint. If you're talking about pheasants, mm-hmm. you less shrubs, but so so that's just kind of illustrates the sort of the ratio that, that that I would look at to be prime bobwhite quail production. Sure, and, and what I hope everyone heard right there in that was okay. 20 to 30 percent grasses lots of forbs but then there was the the presence of shrubs and woody brows and that all those components right there make up one a quality old field stand sure but two that's a very similar composition maybe a little bit more heavy on the woody brows the bare ground aspect isn't nearly as important for a white-tailed deer standpoint however it's necessary and important to rearing really young poults and bringing in insects and for them to navigate and everything. But if you think about it, if you're in that, let's just say, ballpark, and, and again, this isn't like the whole food plot thing is, oh, you need 10% of your property in food plots. This 20%, 20 to 30, that's a really good ballpark to find yourself in. Mm-hmm. But if you waver up to 35 40%, not a big deal yeah. if the rest of the other species are present. But if, if you're dominated by grasses and you're, you know, 70% to 80% grasses and a very minor percentage in forbs, now we're talking that's significant, significant across, let's say, 20 acres of old field. We can, we can change that and alternate that back into the appropriate composition of species there and drastically increase, again, its productiveness. But if you find yourself in that ballpark, of what Frank just said, in your old field stands, you're probably doing really good for mm-hmm. white-tailed deer. You're probably doing really good for poults and turkeys, brood-rearing poults, um, and same thing for quail. Yeah, There are definite different components, and, and, and spatially, let's say they're, they're a little bit different because quail can't travel the distances that deer can. Right. However, let's, let's first at least get the components of what's necessary on the landscape. That's that's tackle the that that's job number one. That's phase yeah. one. From the we can fine tune everything else once it's there and present. But right here, like the pastures that we're talking about, are dominated still, even though they weren't cut for hay this year, they just let go, they're still dominated in Bermuda grass, which is an awful attempt uh of quail habitat. Yeah. You know, they can't navigate through that. A young turkey can't navigate through that. Right, and, and and this gentleman was, he was one of his goals. He stated he would like to have a couple of coveys of quail on his property, uh-huh. just to be able to see them and hear them. Because everybody loves quail, nobody's mad at quail. Just being able to hear Bob White is, is something a lot of people enjoy on a June afternoon. Sure, but he was very, very interested in his turkey population. Oh, no doubt. And he was super excited that. Some of the the things that that Adam and, and I, or excuse me, that Matt and I recommended, uh, particularly Matt, for deer, were going to benefit his turkey population. He he really liked that aspect. But one of the killers on his property was that that Bermuda. Yeah. So even even though turkeys have significantly longer legs than quail, they can no more navigate that Bermuda at at hatching time sure. than a quail can. Yeah. So and, and he even mentioned that he, he saw a. a a brood of turkeys uh-huh. the night before, and he noted that they were traveling on his field road, probably yes. because that's the only place they could, he said they navigate were bowling through. ball size, I guess, so yeah. they were still fairly small. It's the only place they could really navigate. 
So when you, when you think about it, and if you're not familiar with Bermuda grass, if you're from northern states, one, just Google it, check it out. But it's it's a very turf-forming grass, but it's a warm-season grass, unlike um, fescue and smooth brome that you may be familiar with. But it's a very wiry grass, and so it grows up among each other, and it's very, very thick from absolute ground level to about a foot tall. It's yeah, super thick. And it's even hard to walk through it. A human to walk through it oh, yeah. this time of year when it's laid over. You it, pick your feet up. Yeah, you pick your feet up. You, you, you find through. yourself avoiding, try, trying to walk in the field road rather than, than, the, than the grass, than the Bermuda grass. And so you think about a turkey is the same way. Yeah. And so he he was, he has some, even though quail weren't his, weren't his top priority, getting rid of that Bermuda would go a long way to helping his turkey population out, which he was supremely keen on oh yeah oh yeah and so i think that you know as as we often talk about you know there's 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 multiple interest or owners let's say on this property and so you know he found himself in in a balancing act of okay production and income off of some bermuda but then also looking at the key areas and the areas of importance for wildlife and saying okay I know that I have Bermuda here, but what do I do now? Like, uh, how do I take it to the next level? Like, what what are the steps I need to take to, again, achieve the goals in these areas and in these boundaries that I've kind of, you know, been able to or or afford to take out of production and and hay? And so we, we talked a lot about that today, and there's several areas across the whole farm that there is definitely a, a strong Bermuda presence um, there and we even saw potentially um, this bahia grass in, in mm-hmm. some areas as well mm-hmm. other other warm season forages um, but you know we're going to address those in the plan and from what we saw in the seed bank yes there will be native grasses that come back but many beneficial Forbes species as well yeah yeah and, and he was in a in a really kind of a uh, uh, his setup was it was large enough and was set up spatially such that he could meet some of his, the needs for production and have production Bermuda grass, but still have majority of his farm to to deer habitat, to turkey habitat. So you can kind of meet both of those. And, um, and that was kind of honestly a little bit of a, an awakening, if you will, for me. You hear Adam and I talk about, you know, every week, oh, gosh, you know, wildlife 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 but literally we we grew up on farms that we had to balance this stuff out Mm -hmm. and 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 going into this property today and looking at the map with him you know he'd rather himself you know his interests have it all wildlife but he had to balance it with his uh the other owner and everything so you know he 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 agreed and, and you know talk with that other owner previously like okay here's here's what we can work within but in my head like last night and as we're beginning today throughout the property of seeing um the elements there i was like ah it's a big you know 150 acre section that there's just pretty much just bermuda i was like dang i just don't i don't like that large of an area of just this emptiness and Mm -hmm. desert land for wildlife however by the end of the day, as we did a tour and the way we parked and stopped, we kind of overlooked a lot of what we had covered. And as we then referencing back on our maps of the notes that 
Frank and I had taken throughout the day and talked with the landowner, it was like, you know, I'm I'm not nearly as angry at that field now that yeah. we have created some corridors and the vast amount of other areas that we have to be able to devote to wildlife and knowing what's going to come back in those areas because we're seeing these these indicator species and these these cool plants um, and the seed bed that's there struggling to get up through the Bermuda and all these other components of the of the property we saw that and I was like you know what I'm okay with giving that up and realizing that you know that balance of landowners is super important and I don't think that it's really going to inhibit what the goals you're trying to achieve are based on this plan that we're looking at right now. Yeah. It was it was cool for me to sit back and be like, you know what? I, I kind of went into this like, man, I'd really like to change that. I'd really like to break that thing up. Mm-hmm. But it kind of hit me at the end of it. It's like, you know what? I don't think that's all the way necessary. Yeah. No. I- would, it, would it improve it? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. But, but it, it, again, it's a balance. And I think that's super important from a from a plan a management plan going into it is knowing and having clear set goals and understanding the land use of that property right. from and, a landowner standpoint and that's and that's important too that 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 the the gentleman was very honest with us up very. front when we were sitting at the, at the kitchen table the night before he said look i've got some competing interests that 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 we're going to have to 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 kind of deal with and, mm-hmm. and mitigate or 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 compromise and so knowing that beforehand helped you certainly i know it helped me to better understand how, how to frame oh, the yeah. how, how to frame the visit the next day to know okay you know we've got some other competing interests Let, let's let's hit what we can really focus on and um it, it it turned out great it was a it was a very good day uh, and i think the gentleman left with a clearer certainly a clear understanding of just the special communities he had on his farm that he really didn't know he had well um, yeah when, when we were we we're kind of packing up and, and getting ready for uh you know say goodbye and whatever just kind of you know this is the next steps that's what he said he's like you know i i'm just i'm overwhelmed at you know the amount of amount of knowledge one that you guys were able to share about the property but there were things about the property that I had no idea even existed and that were even present or even capable that the property could produce this or was this in the past and can be brought back to this. Hey God, it was just it was just awesome to think, my gosh, what I'm what I'm seeing right now is, is a is pale in comparison to the the vast history of this landscape and the property that we own right now. Because there's so much potential here. Yeah. It's like there's so much potential. oh yeah yeah it was so so from from a from a deer and turkey standpoint it has huge potential if if you were just from a natural community just from a, a if you were a nerd like us yeah if you were a nerd <laughs> and, and he kept kind of referencing yeah. that like wow <laughs> and we told him that there were actually folks that that knew more about plants and they've got more into it than us. And he said, there's people nerdier than you. And like, well, yeah, yeah there yeah. are. I'll but, happily admit that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even if you took away the deer and he wasn't interested in deer, just from a community standpoint, that property was, was super special and had a chance to, to have a ton of, of really great features enhanced on it because 
the components were still there. Yes. And, 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 and they were kind of hanging on in places, but, but yeah. they were still there with a little bit of work, a little bit of effort, a little bit of fire. Boom! You, you could see something great. So it had it has great wildlife potential, but also great community restoration potential. No doubt, no doubt. And, and that's the thing about it is you know, there's going to be a lot of recommendations in this plan. Like it's going to be a very comprehensive of you've got all these different components that we're going to need to address differently and drastically. However, when we do that, you are going to have something present in your region, in your neighborhood, in your area, probably in your county that can't be found anywhere else. Like, this property is going to be so incredibly unique because, one, its foundation, its bones are unique, mm-hmm. but, two, the way we're going to look at it and attack it and manage it and restore it going to be stinking awesome. Yeah, it, you know, from my perspective, that was refreshing because, to be honest with you, a lot of land that I, that I manage that I work on w- was some kind of previous ag land. Yeah. So it had been, yeah. it had been cropped. It had been otherwise disturbed. So that community, it, it, the natural community that was there previously is pretty much gone. Yep. It had been cropped for so long that when you, re, when you take off the cropping and you let it succeed back, it's going to be into some, something that it, it wasn't historically. Mm-hmm. And we can work with that and we can deal with that and we can do some things. But, but to have a property that really had not been... Uh, cropped or had cultivated, not cultivated, cultivated. Yes, absolutely. So, so the the dirt hadn't been disturbed. To, to have a property that hadn't seen that level of disturbance was really refreshing because you yeah. know yeah. that if I come in and I do some some things like remove some trees and re- reintroduce prescribed fire, I'm going to get something that's pretty darn cool. And like and like Matt said, could be a showcase to neighbors to to hey this is what is potentially yeah. there you know and, and 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 the cool thing is what what would come back would be very showy and very aesthetically pleasing oh totally and, and people would could, could see the benefit of that not only from a wildlife standpoint but this is going to enhance my property from a a, a view shed standpoint yes totally totally so let's let's talk a little bit about the timber because the timber um, you know, it was, was kind of, you know, the second-ish big stop there on, on along the property tour this morning when we were getting underway. Um, but, but again, it, and I, I love, I, I feel like we're almost like we're out on the property looking at the habitat. It's almost like a crime scene of <laughs> either lack of disturbances and you're trying to put the puzzle pieces back together. But really, it's like doing forensic forensics on a woodlot and looking at okay what are the elements here what are the clues here that tell me what to do next yeah and a lot of what we found in this portion of of oklahoma and in a lot of different portions of oklahoma but is the large full crown canopied post oaks yeah yeah there there was a lot of those and and it, it or is wolfy post wolf, oaks. Yeah, that we big about. wolf trees or hangman trees. Yep. And, and it, it was cool to, to talk to the landowner about it because he, he didn't really have a concept of why those trees had the growth form that they did. Uh-huh. And to explain to him they have this growth form because they grew with no competition, and that makes you think 
wow. Wait a second. There's no competition. Whoa, whoa, what are yeah. all these cedars doing? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you can't deny that those cedars don't belong there because this post oak is growing, showing the growth form of having no cedars uh-huh. at one point. And so that gives you that gives you the indicator. So so seeing those open crown trees was pretty cool and, and, and really was the first indication that we had that we're dealing with something that could potentially be restored. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and you guys are probably like, okay, guys, we get it. Restoration, restoration, let's talk food plots, let's talk killing deer. But these are the aspects of the property that you have to work with. And, and these are the communities that are present. So if we don't manage that, these communities, plant communities, and the natural resources that are on the property, we're, we're not going to kill the big deer. We're not going to have these improved hunting locations. So th- this is the framework in which we have to be able to shape the future of this property and the, improve the potential of harvesting, you know, great deer, more turkeys, whatever the landowner's goals are. But but so a recommendation here, obviously, we didn't have this this um, open woodlot, woodland savanna type feel anymore. It was definitely encroached by eastern red cedar, um, a lot of elm trees, American elm trees, uh, winged elm, hackberry, hickory. Uh, there was definitely a black oak, black jack, red oak component mixed mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Um and understory trees, uh, we saw basswood, we saw catalpa, we saw some redbud, um, forb component, there was blackberry, there was greenbrier, there was um, river oats, mm-hmm. there was bottle brush grass, lots of different just things present there. But a lot of cool things that we had to be able to work with, though, too, that said, wow, we can really make this thing that much more beneficial. But with all that being said, we 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 identified that we had a wood lot that was that was a mixture of woods and grasses long time ago, woods grasses and forbs a long mm-hmm. time ago, but now it's just closed canopy. Yeah. So so there was a lot of those indicator plants. We talk about that these these indicator plants that are specific are restricted to these certain community types, and, and we saw those indicator plants on the ground. So. They were struggling for sunlight, though we saw some native trailing lespedeses that were mm-hmm. certainly struggling for, for sunlight. But we realized that, hey, this native lespedeza grows only in woodlands or right the transition between a woodland and prairie. So that tells us that that's probably what this community was historically. And probably if we try to restore it, we're going to see a lot more of this. Get that back. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that root system, that root bank is still there. It's still holding on, and it's just ready to go at the first hint of sunlight to shoot up. And there were some pockets, you know, where it may have been a deadfall or whatnot, where we saw some of that. But, but, but one of the things that I, one of the cool things that I, that I appreciated about, about you, Matt, is, is you would quiz the gentleman about different aspects. When we were standing in this woodlot, you said, so what what would you expect a deer to be doing in this particular woodlot? And nothing really more than just passing through. There was yeah. certainly no place to hide. Right. There was certainly no forage on the ground. It was just a place to pass through. And that's not maximizing your habitat. No, I, I, I don't want to have a, a, a landscape or a woodlot or, you know, that that portion of the property was probably, let's, let's say, 30-ish acres 
I don't want 30 acres of a property, just a place where deer are passing through. Right. If I've got 30 acres to my name deeded on land, that ought to be productive to some degree, more so than just, hey, deer pass through here. Absolutely. And so if I have, especially especially if I have these resources available, like the post oak, the woodland, transition prairie, like one of the conversations that we had today in the field, and we talked about it on a podcast, there's a podcast that we did probably a year ago, and it was referring to the value of the sunlight. And it goes back to if you have a property that has maximum ability to capture sunlight, which is strictly an energy resource for living creatures, plants, and animals, if you can harness more of that on the ground level, you're going to have a more productive landscape for the critters you're trying to promote, like the white-tailed deer, the wild turkey, things like that. Yes, squirrels need trees. I get all that. But we're talking about white-tailed deer and turkeys. And the more sunlight, though, that you have getting to the ground, the more productive it's going to be. So when we have these woodlots that are completely shut off from the sunlight, we we might have tops throughout a day, 5% of the canopy letting sunlight in. Well, that's like 95% bad, roughly, and 5% good. And it's like, we need more good than bad, so I need to manage this and change the way it looks. And so I don't want 30 acres of just deer pass through here. I want, I want, you know, 30 acres of awesome quality habitat that deer will be able to utilize. And, you know, we've thrown out, again, on other podcasts, the value of closed canopy forest and what they bring from a forage aspect. They're so incredibly unproductive mm-hmm. for deer on an annual basis that if you just change that and you manipulate that, your productivity across those acres, if turned into, let's say, grasses and forbs underneath of canopy trees that produce mast, now we're looking at like a thousand pounds plus forage per acre comparative to 50 to 100 enclosed canopy forest. It's like, that's nuts. Yeah. You put prescribed fire through that system, mm-hmm. it's only increasing. And it's like, holy cow, we're, we're talking like the difference between feeding, uh, that would be like one deer, because mm-hmm. they eat about 2,000 pounds of food a year. So that 20 to 30 acres would produce roughly that, to, to now producing enough forage every two acres to carry a deer. And it's like, that's the value of going through and doing this and addressing these woodlots that you're like, oh, just deer pass through it. Well, no, 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 no. That's that's valuable real estate that we can use to get there to that goal. We just need to know overall and associate numbers to its productiveness and 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 its or, or let me say its lack of productiveness and where it could be by doing these techniques. It's yeah. it's like it's like if you had a business that was or a portion of a business that was underperforming every single year by 95% comparatively speaking to the rest of the business, what would you do with that? Would you fire it? Would you change it? Well, yeah, you would do one of the two. Yeah. It's either, well, you can't sell it because that wouldn't make sense. Right. You just manipulate because it's a property that you own and you improve it. So you bring it up from 
let's say a value of of five percent compared to a hundred percent productiveness you bring it up from a five percent through the years you get it on up to to a hundred percent or whatever it's going to take time but don't just neglect those acres. No, absolutely not. It, you know, we talk about usable space in the game world, world but it, oh, yeah. it still it, 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 it applies to the wild turkey world. It applies to the, to the white-tailed deer world. If a space is not usable, why would an animal be there? So it, it's, it's important to maximize the amount of usable space you have. And, and in a situation like this, where it was this closed canopy woodland or closed canopy it's forest now, but it had been close, probably woodland. You know, a little bit of tree work, cutting some trees, just cutting and dropping them, mm-hmm. or certain trees, girdling and, and, and maybe treating them. Yep. Uh, whatever the prescription may be, it, it's not, it, it's, it's, not rel- it's relatively not difficult to all of a sudden take something that's unusable and that's closed canopy to making it usable again. Oh, yeah, it's it's a little bit of work, it's sweat. You may have to hire a contractor if you choose to go that route. Uh, you may have to put some fire breaks in. But overall, it's not a huge transformative process that takes a lot of time and money. You can you visually, can attack an acre and and really make oh, a difference. Totally visually, you know, when you go in and you're dropping these these twenty foot tall cedars um, underneath these canopies, yeah, it's gonna look different. But truthfully, to do that for an acre in this density that was occurring, it's not that much work. No. I mean, you think about it. You're proficient with a chainsaw. I'm proficient with a chainsaw. You know, we can go in in a morning situation and do easy, between the two of us, probably five acres. Yep. Go home, take a nap, come back, do it in the afternoon. We, we covered 10 acres that day. Yep. 10 acres. Yeah, it's it's do okay. Let's just say you you devote three weekends a year, you and your buddy who own a property, you do this kind of stuff. You just covered thirty acres in a year. Yep. If you own one hundred and twenty acres, which is decent sized place, right? Average sized place, you just covered twenty five percent of that prop. No, that's not right. You covered what eighteen percent or something like that of that property. Is that right? Gosh, I'm doing. I'm driving. I'm not good with math. So, I said 120 acres, and you did 30 30, acres. 30. So that's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, that's 25 percent. Yeah, 25 percent. That's a fourth of it. Yeah, absolutely. Huh? Yeah. That's a lot of work. You just covered a fourth of the ground in one year. Yeah. So, so take some February weekends when there's nothing to shoot. Yeah. And it's cold. Get some. Get get out. Put your chaps on. Put your safety equipment on. Warm yourself up by cutting trees. It's a great way to spend a February weekend. There's nothing to shoot anyway. Um, get your habitat in order. Yeah, and it's a perfect time, as we talked about, also to put some of those tree produce those those bud producing trees on the ground. Oh yeah, at the time deer need the most too. So you can kind of strategize it to not only manipulate your habitat but also put food on the ground for the deer when they need it the most. If you're a landowner and you complain about cabin fever in February. You need to get out and do yeah. something on your property, yeah. or or you have an amazing property and you've already done it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's there's yeah there's no excuses for not being able to have, um, you know, I- I- if you're not already busy on your your February weekends, this is the perfect thing to be able to do and know again 
the value that the property has in those acres right now. But no, th that's the that's the accomplishment though is knowing what you're shooting for. Yep. And if you don't have a management plan or an understanding of the value that these acres bring to your goal, then it seems insignificant. It, it seems like oh, I'm just you know, I'm dilly dallying. I'm cutting some trees down. But no. You're creating more food. You're creating more cover. You're allowing more sunlight in. You're changing the the land use from the wildlife aspect and the productiveness of it for the better. Mm -hmm. It's cr it's crazy, but it's it literally is, is is that simple. And so this gentleman has got a lot of pres prescribed work in the timber to yes restore some of the woodland type plant communities mm -hmm. which is going to bring incredible value and one of the things i really just appreciate about him was his receptiveness and interest in the and it sounds so dorky but the water table mm -hmm. and the infiltration differences that these woodlot acres restored with cut cedars was going to have on the general landscape not just on his place but remember we all live downstream mm -hmm. this is changing things downstream of his place just as much he's going to hopefully have some springs recharged yeah and yeah, by bringing back these deep rooted plant communities were were pulling more water into the water table yeah so so he had some springs that were clearly dried up and they Inactive. were cedar choked. Yep. He had a wet weather creek that went through there. I shouldn't say wet weather. It had pools of, of water all year long. But I would imagine that it would probably flow. Much. The springs certainly would come back. Yeah. And that, that stream would probably f flow more perennially. Mm -hmm. But just think about increasing the amount of herbaceous cover that was there, or the amount of herbaceous ground cover. Well, then you've just you this then you're building organic matter over time, yep. which then acts as a water sponge. Yep. And that's not being built when it's closed canopy forest, no. closed canopy hardwood. So, you're he, he, you're going to have a much better water holding capacity just by cutting a few trees, letting letting the sunlight hit the ground, build up that herbaceous ground flora, feeding a lot more deer, feeding a lot more turkeys increasing your organic matter it, it just it, it's it's a wonderful cycle that can be had just by returning the landscape to the way it was intended to be yeah and that's the thing uh, and, and and the value of this work is again you know frank you're a hunter yep. i'm a hunter right. i love this kind of stuff because I, I know by default by doing all this work my gosh we're improving the these acres for wildlife but again, it just doesn't stop there as an improvement for just wildlife. We're talking about improving the landscape. We're talking about improving this land and creating or restoring water. Like water and aquifers and springs and seeps on these hillsides, this can happen. And, it, and hopefully when the work is done, it will happen. Hopefully, there's you know there's pictures of before and after of what it was we saw today. Yeah. Let's come back five years from now, and it's going to be a different world. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. We got rain last night. We drove through rain all the way here. Those springs weren't running. No, no. His his timber. The roads were a little wet, but his timber was pretty dry. So yeah. 
it ran off and it left his property, um, which isn't good for if he wanted to build food plots at some point, which he's, he's got in his plan. You know, he, for, for a whole, he wants to have a duck marsh there as mm-hmm. part of his long-term plan. Well, if he's losing water because he can't hold the ground, can't hold it, then, you know, that that potential project may have a harder time getting off the ground yeah. at that point. Um, so there, there was a lot of benefits to that. And, and, and coming to that point, I think, on his property, we noticed that we got off the, the Polaris and Matt kind of went up a hill by himself. And he, he called back to me and said, hey, I think I see a glade up here. And not only did he see a small glade remnant, but we stumbled into something that was pretty darn cool this pretty on this entire hillside. Yeah, we didn't, we couldn't, we couldn't see up through the cedars, past what, you know, what was that small little remnant I thought I saw, and started looking it's like, oh gosh, yeah, this is. We saw a little blue stem. We yep. saw um, lead plant, not lead plant. We blazing saw Lespedeza, and, yeah. and then yeah, blazing Lespedeza, star. yeah, blazing star, yeah. and then. It was like, wait a second, let's just kind of keep going. And we kept going. And then it opened up into this massive potential glade complex. I was like, holy cow. Yeah, we, we, were holy in, cow. we were in a spot where it was a sandstone glade, so it was kind of unique. But if you, could, if you could envision the trees gone, and we were in a little spot, but for some reason most of the trees were gone. There was kind of one wolfy blackjack there. Mm-hmm. But it gave the landowner a really good... Um, a really good idea of what this could acres of this could look like and how and it was on a south facing slope so perfect wintertime bedding area because it's got that warmth that it's going to capture um it, it was it was probably my favorite spot on the property even though it wasn't restored just the potential that it have mm-hmm. to have a unique component that is that is largely lost glades in a, in a lot of places are, are completely gone because of of cedar and blackjack or, or, or other or other invasion um we were finding coneflower little leaflets yep. trying to <laughs> trying to stick its head up there we were finding all these cool indicator plants i was flipping rocks looking for scorpions mm-hmm. you know just kind of you know i didn't turn over a rock <laughs> yeah, i don't know I, I love scorpions and tarantulas <laughs> for some reason but but it was a it was a it was a really really cool feature and, and and, and there were some fire scars on the trees, oh, yeah. so you could see how fire had once kept that open. And it, and it was really a good a good spot to, to bring the landowner to show. And I think we, you showed him pictures later of what a glade might look like. Or, yeah. So, so he could kind of get the idea of what this could look like with, with restoration. It was, it was great. Um, I would love to have a piece of that to restore on my Ooh, own. Yes. How cool that would be. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. Because, again we can see what isn't present there right now and know the value that that brings to the overall property and that's a place well shoot we were talking about it because it it went up a steep slope and then yep. and then it was almost like a tabletop mesa like yeah it but it transitioned strange. to a flat top ridge that was more or less likely to have well it had the woofier post oaks yep. there so it was more of a savanna like feel that needed to be restored there yeah. but we we're we we're sitting there at, at the crest of this little flat top mesa and it was like there's there's a big sandstone rock there and a massive post oak and it was like you imagine the fire that just ripped up this slope and mm-hmm. then just dropped and settled back down across this across this flat top and 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 what we what we couldn't do was was see through 
past the Cedars and to see the incredible view that this property had to offer. Right. And it, and it was just so encroached and so overdone that we're like, oh, man, you know, we can't see that. But I guarantee you five years from now, if you come and you do this, you're going to be looking over a glade that is in the summertime, pick a month, I don't care, June, July, August. Yeah. It's going to be full of color, full of bloom when you restore this. And and this is someplace that I would like to go and watch a sunset with my wife or, yeah. or take my kids and tell them what happened. And, and you know, it, it's just – that's the value of land and that it, it doesn't have to just be a wildlife component that it improves, but it, it's bringing the family out there and showing yes. these teaching moments and these educational opportunities of, man, this is what Oklahoma has to offer. Yeah. This yeah. is Hughes County, Oklahoma. Look at yeah. this. Yeah. And, and the gentleman had two young boys and he was yep. already talking about the future and how he wanted to bring his boys up hunting on this property and 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 really get them immersed in this landscape but it, it was cool now that he's he's got the knowledge to be able to tell take oh, his yeah. family to that place and talk about the historic disturbances point out some of those indicator plants he may not remember every name but he can remember hey this is a sun-loving plant yeah. this is growing here for that reason look at this cat face tree there was a fire that came up here at one point and and not only that, but bring it back to the wildlife standpoint, we talked about standing there how in that little micro little glade that, that the trees were kind of gone from that spot. We could say, look, how much better is a turkey pole off here? Yes, Because yes. it's got cover, it's got forbs, compared to 30 feet over here where it's just leaf litter and yes. he could really put that together and say wow you're right if this extended all the way around this ridge i've got great brood habitat right oh, yeah. on a cold february day south facing slope i've got great thermal cover for my deer here too mm-hmm. he could really kind of put that together from a, and see the benefits because he already had some of that potential habitat available that that was unique about that is is because because we had that there that little micro area he could see what it could potentially be instead yes. of having to well imagine what this yeah. would look like imagine just, just that trust these two guys yeah came to the property, yeah. Right? yeah 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 so he had that uh-huh. and, and that was pretty awesome yeah it definitely was and, and i think overall you know uh, as we're talking about all these different components and, and i think you know we were both excited about many aspects of, of the property and, and one of the ones that i think kind of clicked for him as, as we're getting kind of closer to your exit here um don't let me don't let me miss this I won't. Um, but as we're, as as we were talking about the deer hunting and the elements of of all these different plant communities that are present on the landscape and how to uh, make the beneficial for hunting and how to access stand locations we, we came across one that had just dynamite access mm-hmm. and that you know it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out that my gosh when we when we do the recommendations that we're talking about in these open fields and restore these old old field com- plant communities and we're coming in and clearing out the cedar this area is going to provide thick cover for deer we've got incredible access with these high bank creeks we're going to drop down loop around come on the downwind side of this with a north wind we got food plot to the west we got food plot to the east we got thick cover that's a sanctuary we never go in we never go out 
until it's the right time. We have perfect access. We come in here, and it's going to happen right here. Yeah. Like, I mean, right right here, at some point, you're going to have an opportunity to shoot a great deer. Yeah, and, and he got super jazzed at that. I mean, I could, I was kind of watching him as you were explaining this. And he got, he I mean, was ready was to grab, yeah, he was ready to grab his bow at that point. Yeah, and yeah. Like, let me find a tree. And, and, and that's one of the cool things that, that Landon Legacy provides. Not only this habitat knowledge base, but this also ability to take a piece of property and, and to show a landowner, this is how we can arrange it to make your hunting better. Yeah. We can not only create the habitat, but we can make access points. We can show you access points. We can lay the habitat out where you've got the best chance possible to kill that deer that you want to kill. Just yeah. how we lay out. And, and that's a cool thing that Land and Legacy provides. That going out with you today, I really struck home that not only are you guys providing comprehensive landscape management advice, but on the ground hunt management, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. Yeah, and that gets me jazzed up too, because yeah. it's like, you know, I want to, I want to envision, if you will, like myself and how I'm going to approach this, you know, this location to hunt, or is it even a location to hunt? Is it one of those ones that no, we're not coming in here. The deer that are using this because it is good, we're going to hunt them elsewhere because it's just it's kind of inaccessible. So let's not put pressure here. But let's just kill them and transition elsewhere. You know, that's, I want to I want to address it and approach it from that line of thinking. That's going to be okay. When I go in and when I hunt, that is when I want to be successful. I don't want to just be bumping around. You know, I like to observe deer, but when I go into something, an area that's that's you know, let's say kind of ultra sensitive, um, I want to go in there. I want to be successful, mm-hmm. and those are the key areas that we definitely can identify based on the management of the resource that's there. And again, when you look at the biology of deer and what they do year in and year out, it's pretty dang simple. November time frame, they do the same thing. They mm-hmm. chase does, and does do the same thing. They get out of the way of bucks. Yeah. Where they go thick, gnarly, brushy um, areas of dense cover. And that's what we can promote, and that's what we, that's what we can create on a landscape and, and provide that and, and provide, um, you know, the insight of how deer are going to travel from A to Z. And that A may be a food plot and Z may be a bedding area. And we're going to use topography to, to dictate that. So there's all these different features that really come together um, throughout spending a day with a new landowner on a property. And there's all, all these different things, components that we, we try and address and look at. And, and make a plan to achieve the landowner's goals. And I think, I, I truly do think that after being there and chatting with him about the direction of the property, I mean, I, I've, got, I've got high high hopes for it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's a, an awesome opportunity for him to take hold of this plan, see it through, we'll help him through it, Um the implementation of it, and then just from a, from a hunting aspect, really benefit from it. Yeah, and and I, I was clear. It was clear in in in, in first meeting the gentleman. He was this was a fairly new piece of property that they required mm-hmm. a year and a half ago or so, and, and to see his excitement, which was which was evident, he was excited about the property. But to see his excitement at the end of the day today, when he knew 
what he truly had. I mean, yes. that was that from from my perspective, not having any interest in that land other than wanting to see him achieve his goals. Yeah. His excitement at the end of the day was, wow, this was I, I've got better piece of ground than I ever knew I had. Yes. And it's yes. all there. I just didn't have the, the information or the knowledge to know what I had. Mm-hmm. And he does now. And he has a great roadmap to enhancing the deer that are already there. Yes. Yes. And so I, I'm I'm jazzed up about it. I know you are and I know yep. he is too. So hopefully guys this podcast has has been um a, kind of a, a learning situation for you guys to know like what it is we what we want to achieve when we go to a property and we evaluate it. We want to gain knowledge and share that knowledge of the landscape with the landowner. And yeah, we we'll, I can I can study a map ahead of time and I can have a good idea. I can I can I can I can do some research, but until you get there, you know, we're throwing darts at a wall yeah. trying trying to anticipate exactly the plant communities and the exact recommendations that need to happen to manage the resource appropriately. And and so there's a great example we wanted to share it with you guys on, on the ride back home. And um, again, hope, hopefully it just kind of, it makes sense for you guys as to what it is our goals and objectives are when, when we meet a new landowner, uh, have the ability, uh, the blessing to work with them. And so, you know, hope, hopefully something you learn something through this podcast um, about, again, whether it's uh, natural resources, whether it's unique ecosystems or the biology of some game birds or, or game species. Um, but we appreciate you guys listening. And um, be sure to follow us on social media, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Go follow Upland Flush yep. on Instagram. That's Frank and Kyle Hedges. Um you know they got they're a huge wealth of information, guys. So make sure you follow them, and um, we'll be having some more podcasts here soon, more videos. We're gonna be jumping in a tree. I head to uh, Virginia this next week for a couple new uh, consultations, and Adam heads to Mississippi. So we'll have a little bit of a lull in some hunting activity, but we will soon be back at it. Yeah. Frank, you getting out at all? I am. Um, oh, yeah. I am. My son is jazzed up about deer. He I like is, that. He is 14. We, put oh. a, we did. Uh, they don't stand a chance. No. Oh, no. Not no, a no, no, chance. No. We, put a, uh, we put a Stratton Seed Blend Ooh, mix yep. in behind our house uh, about two weeks ago. Got some great rain on us. Got some good response. He's jazzed up. Got a new crossbow. This kid. Ooh. This kid. Is excited. Talk about and throwing so, darts, man. Yeah. So Look my, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm super excited more so for him mm-hmm. uh, to, to get out there and start enjoying that. And um, thanks so much for bringing me along on this trip. Man. I, I, I had a great time. I enjoyed it. Learned so much. So appreciate it. Absolutely. I, this, this is the first of many to come, so looking forward to it as well. You guys are going to be hearing, again, a lot more from, from Kyle and Frank um, podcasts. You guys have got some other pre-recorded podcasts yeah. from your trip out west that we need to uh, drop and unload. And so um, y'all just be listening and continue to follow along, guys. Appreciate it. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at info at landandlegacy.tv, and uh, we'll get with you. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.